Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Derek Hunter Podcast for this Boxing Day. Yes, Boxing Day, and I am your gift that arrived unwrapped, which is the way that Rod Serling of The Twilight Zone described his birth on Christmas Day. He was, of course, of Jewish ancestry, but he just loved the Christmas season. I am your guest host, Dean Carianis. Gave myself a couple of beats there because hopefully by now you know who I am when you hear my voice. For those of you who don't and we're looking for something to listen today, maybe you're driving home with a big trunk full of gifts and you decided you'd check in with Derek. So I am a friend of Derek's. I'm also a columnist at the New York Sun. I'm also the host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. I worked for Rush Limbaugh for 25 years. I stopped for a while to work at Fox, do some campaigns. But mostly from the TV show on, or certainly from the TV show on, which is the mid-90s, Rush was a big part of my life, big part of my career. I hear from people all the time about how much they miss Rush, and it's nice for all of us to hear. It's nice for Catherine Limbaugh, his wife, to hear that people miss Rush, and especially at Christmas time, because it meant so much to Rush. Today, speaking of making a connection with all of you out there who are in Derek's audience, I received a very nice direct message on Twitter at History Dean, which is where you can find me. Just out of the blue, somebody sent me a message, and he said he'd like to hear from me. He said, is there any chance you could finish off the week on Derek Hunter's show? He said, you do such a great job. Love the historical context. Parentheses, I always learn something. And you don't throw red meat. Derek is too embarrassed to ask. I don't suffer from that affliction. So pretty please. This is a fellow whose name was or handle is Redneck with Brain Damage. So, hey, who am I to deny <laughs> somebody whose brain isn't quite working right? Of course, that would be the person that likes to hear from me. But I've heard from others of you, and I'm always humbled by that, just as I know Rush was. And so I thought, why not flip on the mic here on Boxing Day? My wife is Canadian, so Boxing Day is indeed a holiday in our household and I thought I could give you some of my observations because a lot has been going on here. I appreciate Derek inviting me always to speak with you. It does mean a lot. He told me to have at it, so I am going to indeed do that. Boxing Day is something that originated as a holiday to give gifts to people in need. Originated in the United Kingdom. It's celebrated in various Commonwealth nations, which is why my wife, Kathy, celebrates it because she grew up in Canada. She's a recovering Canadian, I like to say. I thought about that idea of giving at Christmas. When I look at the radio industry in the wake of Russia's death, I see that's been lost. I don't even know if it's been lost as much as it's just been completely eliminated. Rush was always a big Santa Claus. He loved to give. His dad obviously was very successful. Well, maybe you don't know that's obvious, but he was very successful. Came from a long line of successful men, a successful family. They wanted him to go to college. That was not for Rush. He struggled those early years to find a career that suited him. He couldn't pay it if his mortgage bill and credit card bill came on the same day. If you recall way back, if you were around then anyway, in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't buy stuff everywhere with credit cards. Certainly, we weren't all carrying around little mini phones where we could record or pay for whatever we wanted or call all around the world or look things up. So he would have to go to the 7-Eleven to eat. And he always carried that with him because success came to rush relatively late in life. And that made me think of Boxing Day. And it made me think of 
all the things that we hear on radio now and in the media. And to me, it is just too much selling. <laughs> it's just too much looking at people as customers. And this is something that makes me personally uncomfortable, but also was reflected in Rush and the way he talked about the audience. He told us many times behind the scenes, I don't want people to think I look at them as customers. I don't want my listeners to think I'm just trying to get into their wallet. There were plenty of great ideas over the years, things that people wish Rush would sell, would endorse. He would not have any of it. And I think today when I listen to a lot of radio and look at a lot of media, I feel like I'm being sold all the time. And it's repellent. At least it is for me. Maybe the world has changed. Feel free to tell me there at History Dean on Twitter if you think I'm wrong. But to me, when someone's trying to sell you, it's the, it becomes, instead of that connection with the audience that people need to make, it becomes more like, if you remember the old days of the telemarketing, and they'd call you and they'd ask you a few questions, and then suddenly they would tell you they wanted to sell you something. It was a little repellent. I had a job like that for, I think, 48 hours, two days, not 48 hours straight, literally two days. I went and I learned about the job. This is when I'm, I guess, in high school, maybe. And they wanted you to call and they were just encouraging you to just tell people whatever you had to, to keep them on the line and get them spending to buy the product. And I think it was some kind of product with cleaning computers, maybe. I can't even remember what the product was, but I do remember the feeling that I had. Man training me, telling me, well, if they say, well, we only buy local, just tell them you're local. Saying, I don't, I don't even know who these people are. They would just give you a list of numbers to call, and they would teach you how to shill, 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 and sell them. And I said, I feel like I'm calling and telling people that their refrigerator is running. I, I can't have a job where I'm in sales and just lying to people. I did not want to do that at all. And so I left, and fortunately, eventually, Rush came on the radio, and I was really blessed with this opportunity to work for him all those years. But the curse came after Rush passed away because the rest of the industry is, if you think outside looking for a show to listen to, I hope you found one you really, really love. But if you think there's nobody to replace Rush, believe me, there is no job that can replace Rush. That is for sure. So I asked Derek after I got that tweet, and this is service, my friends. Derek said, sure, go ahead, have at it. He said, I didn't want to ask you. I figured you had something better planned. But what could be better planned for this week between Christmas and New Year's than connecting with the fine people in Derek's audience? I sent Derek a very nice Christmas card. You may have heard him say I cheaped out because I sent an e-card. Dean took the cheap route. He sent an electronic card. He sent an electronic card last night, like an e-card. And so I click on the link, and I literally had, there's like Sean Parnell and Dean Carianis and Joe Concha just got all their addresses. And I'm like, I addressed it, and not 20 minutes later, Dean's email card shows up. And I'm like, God damn it. So I took a picture of it, and like immediately after I got Dean's thing, I said, this is not a reaction to your e-card. Already on the way. I'll have you know, my wife made sure to compose a nice little something for that card. It comes with a picture, comes with animation, and perhaps the most important thing of all is my card reached Derek before Derek's card reached me. And do you know when Derek's card reached me? Well, 
I'll let you know when it gets here because Derek's card is late. So I don't know which is the greater sin. The important thing is to remember people and not to look at it as what did people spend? What can I get people to spend? And that brings me back to this theme of, I I don't even like using the word commercialization or commercialism or saying it's too commercial, right? You sound like a communist. I think we're all knowledgeable enough to understand where that line is and how far now we've gotten from the holiday spirit and the Christmas spirit specifically and what this day is supposed to be about. People are shy about that. People don't want to speak about it a lot. There's some that do, uh, of course, and I don't want to keep interrupting myself with saying the exceptions, but in the broad stroke, so much selling, selling, selling all the time. And if you have a great product, I'm all for it. Tell somebody about it. Honestly, can we just declare that the entire conservative movement has enough pillows now? Mike Lindell, I understand. He, he's built this persona. He's built this business. God bless him. But pillows, were we all wandering around <laughs> sleepless in the night in search of a decent pillow? How many of these ads do you have to hear? And granted, I'm in the business. So I'm going to hear a lot more of them. But are, are there any things that aren't just pushing products that, well, we want to add something to something else that's good. Okay, great. Maybe the pillow is the greatest in the world. I've only ever heard about it. I have not slept on it, so I can't criticize it. I understand that this is important, but at some point, don't we all have enough pillows? Can we get to the issues being more the star than the pillow? I feel that a sponsor becoming the star over the stars of many of these shows is exactly why this is so telling. You have somebody who is in business, who is there, who's supposed to be between the show. And it's blurred this line. I will say Tunnels for Towers, which is a great charity many people love. Rush raised millions and millions of dollars for them and the fine work they do with veterans. He's a guest on shows. He's going on Fox. This kind of blurs that line. And I think it allows a lot of hosts to step back and have an easier go of it. I don't think it helps the businesses, and I don't think it helps the shows when we blend things like that. When we make you think every time I turn on the radio, somebody's going to be reaching for my wallet. It just bugs me a little. And I think the thing that, because this is Boxing Day, see how I brought that right back around? That is good radio craft right there. Because this is Boxing Day, it made me think of what we put in that box and giving people less fortunate. And how I think a lot of the radio industry now has lost the idea that we're supposed to be giving you all something. We're not supposed to be asking you to fill our box. We're supposed to be saying, we have this job where we can talk for a living, where we can write for a living, in Derek's case and in my case. And it is a blessing, let me tell you. It is not out there making those phone calls to people, trying to sell them computer supply cleanup equipment in 1989. (laughs) It is not my old business in veterinary medicine. It is not reaching up into a cow and being up there arm deep to inseminate a cow. That's just how it works, everybody. It's not a lot of fun. Or horses. The best thing about that, though, is you get to tell a joke when you pull your arm out and you say, whoa, my watch. (laughs) I guess that would probably be your iPhone. But as much as you're cringing right now, if you have kids in the car, I apologize. They're probably giggling their little heads off anyway. But (laughs) you, you do not want to be reaching up into a cow for a living. You do not want to be on the front line somewhere. You certainly don't want to be at the border. You want to thank people for that, for the opportunity they give you to be in this audience, not look at them as Tuco says in the 
Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, I believe it is. No, it's in The Magnificent Seven. Eli Wallach, Brooklyn's own, and he plays uh, the bad guy there. And he says in The Magnificent Seven of the Townspeople, if God didn't want them to be sheared, he wouldn't make them sheep. And gosh, that folds right into this attitude people have, this condescension to people who are conservative. Well, they're just a bunch of hicks. They're just a bunch of hayseeds. Ah, they're just to be fleeced. They're sheep. They follow. Well, I could tell you from personal experience for all those many years, that is not the case with people in general. There's a lot of people. Sheep tend to baa pretty loud, but that's not the case. Most people want to think independent, and they appreciate if you respect them as individuals. So since I brought up all this, what am I going to put in your box today? Because that's something that man said on Twitter, that I always teach something, I always give you something, I always learn something, always give you a little bit of history. So I have a few things here that go along with that theme. One of them is specifically my column in the New York Sun last year about a Charlie Brown Christmas. This is one I really loved writing, let me tell you. It meant so much to me because it's a it's a movie that brings together this theme, if we call it that, of boxing up something for people who are listening to you, who are lending you their ear, who are lending you your eyes in the case of a Charlie Brown Christmas, not assuming what they want, not looking at them as too dumb or too unsophisticated or too uneducated to understand, and how a lot of people tend to get that wrong in the radio and TV production business. The headline here in the New York Sun was, A Charlie Brown Christmas Emerges as a Yuletide Miracle. The subhead is, it no doubt will run for 100 years and more, and here's the reason why. Now, I'm not going to read the whole piece because reading on radio tends to get a little boring, but I'll summarize some of it. And if you want to read the whole piece, you can go to my Twitter feed there. And I'm not plugging my Twitter feed, even though it sounds like that just happens to be where it is. And you can click through there to nysun.com to the New York Sun, and you can read the whole thing. I began, millions of viewers are spending their holiday weekend with 1965's A Charlie Brown Christmas, unaware of the miracles it takes for a movie with such strong Christian and anti-commercialism themes to endure as a Yuletide classic. I quoted the executive producer, Lee Mendelson, and he recounted how this was supposed to be a plug. <laughs> We're talking about cynical plugs. This was supposed to be an advertisement for Coca-Cola. There's a little bit at the front of this special that they cut out that shows Charlie Brown skidding into a tree and there's drink Coca-Cola and they usually cut that out or they do cut that out now when they broadcast it. But he produces it. They go through. He sells it to Coca-Cola, does Mendelssohn. Then he goes to Charles Schulz, the creator of Peanuts, and says, hey, I just sold this thing called the Charlie Brown Christmas. And he says, what the heck is that? And he says, I don't know, but you're going to write it this weekend. And they, they produce it. The people watch it from Coke. The network watches it and they say, this is horrible. We can't possibly air this, but we have to. We have no choice. We've already taken Coca-Cola's money. So there you go. Perfect example. Even when they don't believe in something, they say, well, we took the money, so we have to put it on the air. That Christian message then, if you think people today are hostile to Christmas because this is something that's been commercialized in and of itself, this idea of the war on Christmas, you know, my my old employers there, well, most of them are gone, but at Fox News Channel now, there is war on Christmas season where they start doing all these segments. And there are certainly legitimate things that are pushed back. But if you watch the movie White Christmas, Bing Crosby says, everyone has an angle. <laughs> and that's certainly the case there with that. I'm not as cynical as Derek, but I'm kind of cynical. 
Scholes said, if we're going to do a Christmas special, we've really got to do it the right way and talk about what Christmas is all about. And Mendelssohn felt that quoting from the Bible was risky. <gasps> we can't possibly quote from the most sold, most read book ever made, right? That's my aside. And Scholes asked a simple question. If we don't do it, who will? And I think if you go back and watch the special now, as an adult, and probably you have some things in your childhood you think people picked on you and you felt a little put down or you're sad this time of year. The way that Charlie Brown talks about Christmas, it starts off depressing. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. All the little girls are cruel to him in Charlie Brown Christmas. You've been dumb before, Charlie Brown, but this time you really did it. <laughs> what a treat. call him stupid. Blockhead is the least of what they call him. I mean, literally, they call him stupid, hopeless, dumb. They're really mean to him. His own dog laughs at him. It is really <laughs> clear why CBS thought, we can't possibly air this. Look how mean this is. This is so negative. That's not what anyone wants. And it has a jazz score. They absolutely did not want that. And now you play Lannis and Lucy. If you've ever heard Adam Carolla, he's played it a couple times. And he says, listen how great this is. You could put literally anything under this. And it would be, it would be great because it's just such a catchy tune. Wasn't even released as an album. That only came later. And then there comes that point. After all of this abuse is heaped on Charlie Brown. After they demand a big metal aluminum tree. And I'm old enough to remember when some people still had those. This special single-handedly killed the aluminum tree business. It became a symbol of an overly commercialized Christmas, and people drew away from those. Do yourself a favor, go look up aluminum Christmas trees, and you'll see here what they were talking about in the special. They look completely ridiculous. But by trying to go back to them, even though it's just a secular symbol out of Germany, by dragging us back, keeping us to that original tree, I think that is special and a, a little bit of what's layered into this really crudely drawn, rushed together cartoon. A lot of layers after all of this abuse is heaped on him. There's this moment of exasperation where Charlie Brown cries out, Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Listen to how casual Linus is. Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And it just makes me think of how obvious it is. We all know what Christmas is all about. And yet, we avoid saying it. So many things ignore it, don't think about it. They refer to it as Tony Snow called it in a column once, holiday. That was probably in about 96. He says, how people just don't even say Christmas. They'll just say holiday. We are going to celebrate holiday this Monday in 2023. Now, in the buildup to this, there's a few scenes where Linus is shown loving that blanket of his. And then when he quotes the angel of the Lord saying, fear not, he drops the blanket. And it's a security blanket, right? It makes a kid feel safe. I had a blanket that I unoriginally named Blanky. Somehow, somewhere along the line, he became a capital B, blanky. He was really just a rag. Maybe it was raggy. I can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, I guess that's where I got my imagination from. It had to build from somewhere if I could animate a strip of cloth. But when he drops that security blanket, it's symbolic of casting away his fear, of Linus casting away his fear. And this is the central message of Christ's birth, that mankind need no longer fear death. You think of Charlie Brown's dark mood shifts and the other children mocking him and how cruel they are to him. And this changes them a little. They're still actually mean to him at the end, but changes their mood when they're reminded of what the true meaning of Christmas was. Unfortunately, it did not have the same effect on CBS executives. They thought it was a massive downer. They'd already taken Coke's money, so they were stuck with it. The suits told the animators, you made a nice try. We'll put it on the air, obviously, but it just doesn't work. They were horrified at the blatant message and Linus reading from the Gospel of Luke. <gasps> Gasp! It was just one break with TV's conventional wisdom. And we all know that, like radio's conventional wisdom, of course, it's never wrong. Special had no laugh track. <laughs> you watched 60 shows, you heard laugh tracks in everything. Gilligan's Island, even MASH had a laugh track till they finally got rid of it. It was just how it was done. This did not have any laugh track. How are people possibly to know where to laugh if you don't have a laugh track of fake laughter? Well, maybe just make it funny and people will figure out on their own whether or not to laugh. Uh, it had that novel jazz score and it has that halting dialogue. Today we may love that, the way that they speak, but it was because they cast kids that were just too young to read and they had to coach them to, to read the script, sometimes one syllable at a time. It was, imagine people who were professionals looking at this saying, oh my gosh, it's a mess. And why? Because they only saw all of that surface commercial noise. They didn't see what was really the focus of it and what it would mean to people. They didn't know their audience. A Charlie Brown Christmas is now the longest running Christmas special in TV history. But when Mendelssohn looked at his own work, he said, maybe it was just too slow and we failed. Poor Charlie Brown. Well, one animator there got it right. His name was Ed Levitt. And he told Mendelssohn he was crazy. He said, this is going to run for a hundred years. <laughs> well, we are, we're about halfway there now. And, and that journey started the very first day of Charlie Brown Christmas aired. It was a ratings miracle. Never mind a rating smash, a ratings miracle. About half the TV sets in America tuned in on December 9th, 1965 for the premiere. And remember, there's no tablets back then. There's no smartphones. 
There's no streaming. There's no VHS tapes, nothing. You either see it or you don't see it. And half of American TV sets tune into it. And that's families. They had big families back then, 1965. That's so many people watching it. It was a smash. They didn't care about things like no laugh track or the halting dialogue. They certainly weren't repelled by the fact that Linus talks about what Christmas is really all about in a Christmas special. To them, Christmas wasn't just a name that they put on that box and said, bye, bye, like they live with Rowdy Roddy Piper. I'm giving you a choice. Either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. It was apparently supposed to be John Carpenter's commentary on the Reagan administration. That shows you, I guess, it was good social commentary and that everybody could enjoy it and find some truth in that. But they weren't just telling people, sell, sell, sell. And you know what? By doing that, by trying, first and foremost, to put out a new product, not just sell Coca-Cola. Well, Coca-Cola got so many more people looking at this than they would have something that was just a Charlie Brown soda fountain or whatever they might have done for Christmas. Because they put out a good product, everybody benefited. The soundtrack alone, when they eventually released it, sold millions of copies. And it is number two on Billboard's top albums this year. Now, again, I was writing this last year, so last year, still popular today. And in 2020, when Apple TV limited a Charlie Brown Christmas to subscribers, what happened? Fans rebelled. They went back to that message of commercialization at the price of Christ. Apple TV has since offered it for free. And to me, this is not a message of anti-capitalism. I know a lot of people try to adopt it as that, try to turn it into that, co-opt it into that. But remember, what did Christ himself do? He was in the temple. He saw people buying and selling there at the altar. And he got mad, right? When I get mad, sometimes I'll, I'll pull this on my wife. I'll say, well, you know, even Jesus in the temple, he got mad, started turning stuff over. <laughs> Never, ever compare yourself to Jesus, let me just tell you. But, <laughs> but it's true. He knew what that was. He knew what they were doing. What were they doing? They were using the temple. They were using the Torah in that case, before Christianity comes along. Jesus sees his father's name being used this way, slapped on cheap commercialism, trinkets, goats, and he's rightly outraged. I was going to say offended, but that's a charge word now, and Jesus didn't need to be offended. Outraged, righteously indignant. This was for a moment him being the God who decided he was going to flood the world. And so it was fine that people were upset, and it was good. They got a positive response. As I closed this piece last year, the world remains awash in depressing news, commercialism, and people uncomfortable with sharing the morality of the Bible. The special that did everything wrong, in quotes, inspires us still because Charlie Brown did what's right and stood up for the true meaning of Christmas. And I want to bring you next another column that I wrote, which is about a short story called The Greatest Gift. This is a story you probably never heard of, but the headline in the New York Sun was How a Story Nobody Wanted Becomes the Christmas Classic, It's a Wonderful Life. It's really inspiring. Now, I know this story because the man who wrote The Greatest Gift was named Philip Van Doren Stern. And yes, Stern, since I was just talking about this not being a sermon, here we have a fellow who had a Jewish father. He's buried in a Jewish cemetery. He gives us this Christmas classic in 1946, this movie, or he inspires it. His story did. The movie itself was a box office flop, and the novella, nobody wanted it. And it's such an inspiring story this time of year. Here's a line from my column that I, I really patted myself on the back for. The dream that became It's a Wonderful Life danced like a sugar plum in the head of its author, Philip Van Doren Stern. 
He wakes up and he begins writing what becomes this 4,000 word short story, The Greatest Gift. It takes him five years to do so. He produces one of the world's most iconic Christmas tales, but guess what? Nobody knows it. Nobody wants it. (laughs) And Stern was an author and editor. He was in the book business and still nobody was interested. And I wrote that the dark opening of The Greatest Gift may be the reason. The little town straggling up the hill, it reads, was bright with colored Christmas lights, but George Pratt did not see them. This scene that begins the short story is duplicated 98 minutes into the film, and we're all familiar with that. Pratt is leaning over the railing of the Iron Bridge, staring down moodily at the black water, contemplating suicide. He's sick of everything. He's stuck here in this mud hole for life, doing the same dull work day after day. The guy wishes he'd never been born. Now, you can see where publishers thought this isn't the dough from which Christmas cookies are made. Hey, another nice turn of phrase there, right? Well, if I don't say it, who will? Of course, I have to say it. The publishers may not have read any further to enjoy the story of redemption or to have seen Pratt's supernatural glimpse of how his life had touched those he loved most. Help me, Clarence! Get me back! Get me back! I don't care what happens to me! Get me back to my wife and kids! Help me, Clarence, please! Please! I want to live again! I want to live again! I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. Okay, so Stern doesn't have a contract. He says, I worked on this for five years. I know all these some bitches in the publishing industry. A term, some bitches, invented by the great, legendary, the great one, of course. He was called the great one. Of course, he was great. Jackie Gleason for the film Smokey and the Bandit because he felt that he should have a curse that wasn't offensive to kids but also still be funny. So he came up with some bitch. So we owe that to the great Jackie Gleason, the great one. Where are you, you some bitch? So what did Stern do? No contract is under his tree. Yeah, I worked a lot of puns in here in my writing. But <laughs> nothing's under his tree. So what does he do? He doesn't sit there and cry. He prints up the story into pamphlets as Christmas cards. He sends them out to 200 people. And in an afterword for 2014's The Greatest Gift, A Christmas Tale, his daughter, Marguerite Robinson, wrote of delivering the story to my teachers and my friends who were children from a variety of backgrounds and religions. Ms. Robinson wrote that her father, who was himself from a mixed religious background, had explained that the whole story takes place at Christmas time and that we were sending it as a Christmas card to our friends, but it is a universal story for all people in all times. Well, a Christmas miracle of sort happened. One of Stern's copies reaches a producer at RKO Pictures. He buys the rights. He envisions Cary Grant as its star. Cary Grant was tempted to play it, but he did not. It ends up going to the director of It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra, who purchases the rights, and he approaches Jimmy Stewart to play the role. James Stewart, for those of you who don't know, he is the highest-ranking actor as far as military service goes. An exception is sometimes technically made for President Reagan, who was commander-in-chief, so he's the highest ranking of all. But as far as active-duty military, Brigadier General Stewart, he served He served actual combat missions in planes in World War II. So when he comes back, he's reluctant to jump right back into acting. He's seen the elephant, as they said in the Great War. But Capra convinces him to come play the renamed George Bailey. Something I didn't put in my column, by the way, is the name and the significance of it. The name George, there was a saying in World War II that was, let George do it. 
So if you had a job and you didn't feel like particularly doing it, hey, take out the trash. And you say, ah, let George do it. Of course, if you're Greek like me, that means which George, because there's probably seven guys that you know named George. But this is a saying among the less George heavy set. And so that, that's the first half of his, of his name, George Bailey. Second part is Bailey. And even though Bailey is spelled B-I-L-E-Y, like Bailey's Irish Cream, or like a favorite dog of mine, my friend Mojo out there, his dog is named Bailey. Even though it's spelled like that, it invokes Bailey, which is the legal term for somebody who takes possession of something, but never ownership to deliver it to somebody else, just like a gift, like the greatest gift. You take that and you deliver it. Your job is to safeguard it, take it from one and give it to another. And that's kind of what James Stewart's character, George Bailey, does for his entire town. And it's a role in a town. I absolutely love things like that, where they, they go to the level of the name. And if you look at many of the names in various fiction, you'll find that people are doing that sort of things. The good writers, anyway. I'll give you a little quick example. Movie The Sixth Sense. Have you seen it by now? Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, every single human has probably seen this movie. I walked out of that film with my friend Brian, who has been on with Derek, Brian Darty. I knew him from Russia's TV show. And he thought it was a big surprise ending. Everybody did. And I said I didn't because Bruce Willis' character is named Malcolm Crow. And there's only a few reasons to name somebody Crow. And one of them is there's the legend that a crow can bring back the soul of the dead. This is a Native American legend. This is the basis of the crow, the comic book character that was played by the late Brandon Lee. Unfortunately, he didn't have a chance to become great because he passed away on that set in that horrible shooting mishap. But I had a feeling. It just, it just triggered me in my head because nothing that happens in fiction, as much as it's supposed to be transportative, happens by accident. And just like a Charlie Brown Christmas, how does this scene start out? It starts out with the hero begging for death. And you can see why the short story, it needed to be fleshed out a little bit. So the film begins not with a man contemplating suicide, but screenwriters wrote in all that backstory. They begin the film not with the hero at his lowest moment, but they show the audience his noble character. They show the audience all the people that have had their lives made better by George Bailey the people that, as he's there at his lowest moment, he completely forgot. Things that were added were Henry Travers. He's the He plays the angel, Clarence Oddbody, and he's struggling to earn his wings. That's all a Hollywood creation. So is the antagonist, as impossible as that might be to believe. Lionel Barrymore, who played Scrooge so many times in A Christmas Carol. That was an annual tradition. So his miser, Henry Potter, he is a complete invention for the story to give a foil, because in the story, The Greatest Gift, we never find out just why George Pratt, as he's named in the short story, wants to end his life. And I think in some ways you could argue for that. You see the string of bad luck and injustices that George Bailey suffers, but I think maybe if you read a story and it's a little Kafka-esque, for instance, with The Trial, that's the Kafka book that I'm thinking of, another novella, you don't know. They won't ever tell him why he's on trial. I think maybe you connect a little more with somebody, you could argue, who you don't know why they've gotten to this lower moment, because we all have things that depress us and make us sad sometimes. And Donna Reed, who plays Mary Bailey, as well as James Stewart himself and Frank Capra, all three described this film as their personal favorite. In a letter to Stern, Stewart called the novella, quote, an inspiration to everyone connected with the picture. And he said the fundamental story was so sound and so right Although It's a Wonderful Life failed to recoup its budget, it was nominated for five Academy Awards, didn't win any of those, but as the years passed, 
Audiences around the world fell in love with the tale. What started as a story nobody wanted was ranked the most inspirational movie of all time by the American Film Institute in 2006. The Greatest Gift inspired a classic because Stern, like George, call him Bailey or Pratt, recoiled from darkness and overcame disappointment. In the novel, film, and story behind the story, we find reason to open our eyes to the lights twinkling around us and realize that despite our deepest troubles, we have all been gifted a bright and wonderful life. And many of us have had moments like that where we hopefully are not right on the edge of the bridge, but we feel like just throwing it all in. And we may not see the Clarences all around us. We may not feel that hand on our shoulder, but it is good to reflect on the other people that we helped because this is the idea. You box something up for somebody else here on Boxing Day. You're giving to the less fortunate. You may wonder where your gift is on Boxing Day. You may wonder where the people are that are caring for you. But I think if we think we can find some of those times. Or maybe it was just a little something where you were saved, where you were helped. We've all had setbacks. We all focus on those. That's how our brains are wired. They did an experiment with mice, and if they shocked the mice and caused the mice pain, they would have much better memories than they would if they were just getting something happily and easily. So we're naturally prone to look at the negative. And so I think this time of year when it is easy to do that, we miss people that are gone. We miss people that are here that don't speak to us that don't like us, that have turned their back on us, that have betrayed us over the years. It's easy to be depressed about those things, angry about those things, resentful about those things. I think these two movies are really special because they don't gloss over that pain, but they point us to realistic ways to get through it, not just platitudes. I have to be honest, I feel like I'm offering some platitudes now, being platitudinous, if I want to use the pretentious term. But it's really true. We all feel like that. I see a lot of people that don't take that responsibility seriously when I watch them in the media and listen to them on the radio to make that connection, to understand that people turn on the radio, you have to put something in the box for them. They turn on the TV, you have to put something in the box for them. It is not a one-way relationship. They are not just people to be sold to. We in the audience are not just people to be sold to, to not care if we live or die. It's really important to make that connection. I don't think that it's done enough. And I think specifically since we're in an audio medium here, it's good to talk about that. And I know Derek talks about that. You're going to be able to hear more of him on the radio, more of his influence. See if he can make this all work on a broader palette. I know in the new year, I have some insider information on that, but you should all tune into Derek to hear it from the horse's mouth when he explains what he is going to be doing in the year ahead. Speaking of the radio industry and, and this general theme of not knowing your audience there was another column here that I want to close with, and that was titled, When it comes to Christmas music, young listeners love the classics. This was just some industry inside research, and I thought I could make an interesting column for people out there, show it to you in a way that maybe would make my readers at the New York Sun interested. The opening line is, as contemporary artists try to capture the Christmas spirit, Spotify finds young listeners are crooning to the classics. And I could have said standards here, which I'll get to in a minute. There is a distinction. The data reflect a gift under the tree for Americans, the kind of shared cultural touchstones that unite us across the lines, dividing generations, genres, and even religious beliefs. My wife, who has two degrees in music, she's a pianist, she's a singer, she had a jazz band for a while up in Canada, she played me this Michael Buble song, The Christmas Sweater, and Boy, she took care of saying that the music was terrible, I took care of saying the lyrics were terrible, this 
nagging people to put on their sweater reminded me of this sore spot I have, I'll call it, in listening to media and people telling you to do things all the time. It just was just a very hectoring line. Had nothing to do with the spirit of Christmas. I'm sure it's wildly successful and good for him. He's obviously somebody who has a great career and is talented. And if you like that song, I'm not going to try to talk you out of it. I know Derek likes to tell James Golden, our mutual friend, uh, both nerdly, that his musical takes are wrong. I won't presume to do that. If people like it, Michael Bublé clearly is a popular artist, seems like a nice enough guy and what little I've seen of him. So this is fine. He wants to try to cash in, I will say, on Christmas. Fine. I don't expect everybody to write Hallelujah Chorus, but it is part of this general theme. Well, it's Christmas. We'll just crank out some Christmas themes, put out a quick album and see if people will buy it. Well, it's not those songs that people have caught on to as far as the radio industry goes. This is from Integrate Research, and the man I'm quoting is named Matt Bailey. He wrote all about this and found almost two-thirds of the most played Christmas songs on Spotify are from styles and eras of music that radio abandoned decades ago the rest of the year, which makes sense. You're not going to hear something like In the Mood by Glenn Miller, some big band stuff, the rest of the year. You're not going to see anybody releasing an album of big band songs. You get Steve Martin, get some banjo, but that's not mainstream stuff. And this is not something that the radio industry expected. The people who know capital K in the industry did not know. The top five songs on Spotify for 2022, the last full holiday season that had statistics, held their place for the week of Thanksgiving 2023. These are Brenda Lee's Rockin' Round the Christmas Tree, from 1958, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, a little more recent, 1994, that came out, Bobby Helms' Jingle Bell Rock from 1957, Wham's Last Christmas from 1984, and 1963's It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by the late, great Andy Williams, a conservative friend of the Rush Limbaugh show, loved that way that we did uh, Born Free, if you recall, if you go back that far with all the gunshots and explosions and animals screaming over it. Uh, back in the days of the great animal rights wacko updates, that, that was always a funny one. People loved it, and so did Andy Williams. Noting that millennials and Gen Zers remain overrepresented among Spotify users, Mr. Bailey said, we can learn a lot about how Christmas music is changing by examining their Spotify usage. And Integrate found that 46% of songs celebrating the holiday on Spotify's top 200 were standards or modern covers of them. These are as distinct from classics. Standards are those ones from films like White Christmas from the 40s, Glenn Miller, guys like that. Another 19% were in the oldies category, which I'm sorry to tell those of you who are baby boomers out there, includes singers like Elvis Presley and the Ronettes in the 50s and 60s. Then there are the classic hits, again, radio jargon. That's by artists such as the Jackson 5, Eagles, and Paul McCartney. They accounted for another 16% of the songs. Songs in the 1990s, just 9% of the streams. And that millennial category wasn't much larger. That's just 12%. And it's dominated by songs like All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey and Kelly Clarkson's long list of tinsel-themed hits. And then there was something interesting in the data, and it goes to this idea of the world that Linus spoke to, of joy to the world, and what that's supposed to mean. You go to Fox and everyone complains, I'm put upon. Everyone wants to be a victim today of something. And, oh, Christians, we're going to feel victimized. We're going to feel 
certainly there's things like martyrs. Certainly people are victimized around the world. You go to North Korea and see how Christians are treated or, or in China. And you know that these places like this are, of course, anywhere in the Muslim world where you can't even have a Bible. Yeah, you're persecuted. Here, what, what should your job be? What should your role be? And I think it's interesting that it's secular songs that dominate on Spotify, which shows the unifying power of these timeless messages, whatever your religious beliefs are. Mr. Bailey wrote, the songs that enjoy the broadest appeal among the younger user base are songs evoking the spirit of the season, not the religious significance of the holiday. But Mr. Bailey assured Christian listeners that they'll still hear Little Drummer Boy, O Little Town of Bethlehem, the first Noel and Silent Night on the radio. However, he said no version of these classic carols are among the 80 holiday titles that made the Spotify Top 200 last year. Of the 81 songs in the Top 200 in 2022, only three featured the Nativity. Those were Joy to the World by Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby's Do You Hear What I Hear and God Rest Ye Merry gentlemen from 1960 1962 and 1942 respectively i was so proud of myself i could i could hear rush saying good job coco jr that i put the comma in my column after mary because every year rush would point out the gentlemen aren't merry folks the it's god rest ye merry pause gentlemen god rest ye merry comma gentlemen the gentlemen are not merry it is a command to rest merry Sorry, I haven't done a Russian impression in a while, but that's how he sounds in my head. I'm sure you're all familiar with the song, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Now, there's a little side note to this. Most people think it's God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen, as in God Rest Ye, comma, Merry Gentlemen. It's not, it's God Rest Ye Merry, comma, Gentlemen. Because not all gentlemen are merry, <laughs> as we know, especially in this era. And so I thought that that was something important to get in there, because this document that I read from in the radio industry. This did not include the comma. The gentlemen are not merry. I challenge you, if I've done my job here, you will never again be able to hear God rest ye merry gentlemen again and not know that the men are not merry. They are not a merry man, as someone pointed out to me. Again, Mojo of the Bailey Dog fame pointed out to me. Worf says Star Trek The Next Generation during their recreation of Robin Hood and his merry men. He says, Sir, I protest. I am not a merry man. So there you go. Picture some Klingons next time you hear that song. I have a lot more stats in here, but the important thing is, a decade ago, Mr. Bailey wrote, a popular meme highlighted how the 20 most played Christmas songs on radio were primarily a snapshot of the songs baby boomers heard on the radio when they were grade schoolers. Back then, data rated Rock Around the Christmas Tree and Jingle Bell Rock as the most played songs, in third place was a tie, Gene Autry's Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer from 1949, and from 1957, Elvis Presley's Blue Christmas. And Mr. Bailey writes something significant here to me being in the radio business. Music nerds pontificated that those boober childhood chestnuts would eventually fade away as younger generations sought to recreate their own childhood Christmas soundtracks. Well, the future is now, and what happens? The likes of Bing, Elvis, and Williams endure. Despite changing times, that traditional family Christmas album still abides in people's minds. Mr. Bailey writes that as boomer parents played the songs for their own families, their kids grew to think of Bing Crosby and Brenda Lee as Christmas music artists, not one-time pop superstars who also recorded Christmas songs. Mr. Bailey said of young listeners, the appetite for Andy Williams is much stronger than for Ariana Grande who I am old enough to 
hear that name and think, boy, can't anyone just order a coffee anymore? Huh? What? Get it? Come on. Ariana Grande, right? Coffee. They, that's a joke. The millennials, they never call in a large coffee anymore. Everything's got it. Nah, forget it. I, everything can't work. It was a gift for you, and now you are not getting a gift again. This is why you need a laugh track, see? Because <laughs> you tell bad jokes, you could add a laugh track. I'll try it again. Watch with a laugh track. Ariana Grande, can't anyone just order a coffee anymore? <laughs> ah, we'll see with a laugh track. Makes it much funnier. It's not at all insulting to the audience that I just made my lame joke funny by adding cheap audio drops. Anyway, I thought you would find that interesting. And it's a reminder that people that are in an industry don't necessarily know what their audience wants. They can lose touch with them. And I thought that was really special because there's a lot of condescension to millennials, to younger people, to, then they certainly condescend to older generations. The older generation never knows what they're talking about. I wanted to say one last thing, and that is, I have gotten my favorite correction of all time at the bottom of this New York Sun column. The correction reads, the song Last Christmas is performed by Wham! An earlier edition misstated the performer's name. Yes, I had George Michael, because George Michael is my fellow Greek Cypriot, not cousin, but I did have a cousin who, who was friends with him, another performer. My own real name? Yeah. Somebody told me you were going to try and say this, but I don't believe them, because my, my real name is Yorros Kiriago Baneodou. It sounds like George Michael can say it really quickly. Yeah. That's why I didn't say it. It's a, it's a, it's a real, you know, get your te teeth into it Greek name. Yeah, I put George Michael because George Michael is the guy who sings the song. He also wrote and produced it. He also sent it out in albums of his own. But I got a correction at the bottom, but I will take it. And I'm sure that George Michael would appreciate it. Well, that's it for the Boxing Day edition of the Derek Hunter podcast. I hope you enjoy what I boxed up and wrapped for you today. I know it came a little late. Tomorrow we will be more on time, but this came as a late-breaking request from Redneck with Brain Damage. So for the rest of you out there, whether you have brain damage or not, whether you are a redneck or not, I hope you enjoyed hearing from me. I'm going to forego the usual plugs in the spirit of this show and about giving back to all of you out there who listen to radio, who enjoy radio, who are in Derek's audience you know where to find the show. You know where to support his show and my show if you wish to do so. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. And I hope you got everything you wanted under your Christmas tree. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Same bad time, same bad station. That's right.